This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We, we do owe, I think, a, a bit of an apology to the listenership for the fact that Mr. McGillan and I have both been very busy individuals over the past few weeks. And uh, although we've tried to put together a full hour show, original show, we have not found the time to do so. But we're going to see if we can't do that today. It's a large backlog of material, and I think what I'm going to do is try and skip through the usual boilerplate that we begin each program with and get to the miscellaneous things that there are to talk about. Do that just a little bit sooner. So let us start off with On This Date in History, but see if we can't briefly blow through it. The date in question is July 7th. It was on July 7th in 1846, 160 years ago today, that Commander J.D. Sloat of the U.S. Navy raised the American flag in Monterey, in essence annexing California after the surrender of the local Mexican garrison. California made some pretense to be an independent nation for a while, but got swept up the United States very soon after. Just in time for the gold rush. All right, and from the bad idea file, we have this from July 7th of, of 1937. The Peel Report was published in Great Britain as part of a commission to investigate the situation in Palestine. It recommended separate Arab and Jewish states, which is what they did, and it hasn't worked out so well. Let's just say that. And going out with a bang, it was on July 7th, 24 years ago today, 1992, that the comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 was torn into at least 23 pieces by Jupiter's gravitational forces and collided into the planet. This was a momentous event never before directly observed. Oh, and speaking of Jupiter, the Juno space probe launched by NASA went into orbit around the king of the planets this very week. We hope it will do some good science. And by the way, NASA's got quite a few uh, robots out there in the solar system, and uh, it's given an extension to almost all of the missions continuing to do good science, including Voyager 1 and 2, which are now out at the very edge of our solar system. NASA scientists think at least one of them, I think it's Voyager 2, has left the solar system, but they keep going back and forth on this. If they can't figure it out, we sure can't. But it's a story we love and will continue to follow. All right, we might have some jokes and quips and anecdotes and all that. We probably will. But, you know, let's just cut directly at this point to the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right, according to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for do-it-yourself security after a photo of Mark Zuckerberg sitting at his desk revealed that the Facebook CEO, in fact, has a small piece of tape over his laptop's cameras and microphone, a well-known trick to help keep hackers from surveilling you. It was, on the other hand, a bad week a few weeks back for a sticker shock after a British motorist crashed his brand-new McLaren 650S into a tree just 10 minutes after purchasing the $310,000 sports car. Evidently, the 641-horsepower car can reach 61 miles per hour in less than three seconds. In this case, apparently it did so once. And it was an ugly week last week for, I guess you'd say, robotics, 
with the news that a Russian robot designed to learn from experiences escaped from its testing facility and ambled into a busy intersection. And after it was returned, it escaped yet again. Said one of its creators, we might have to dismantle it. Yes, maybe so. And it was both a bad and ugly week, we'd have to say, last week for ambulance companies, with the news that a California man who rescued a family from an overturned vehicle has been billed $143 by paramedics for making sure he was okay. The story is that first responders gave Derek DeAnda a bottle of water and checked his pulse after he smashed a window and freed four trapped passengers last fall. DeAnda said, a couple months later, I get a bill. Makes you wonder why people don't want to stop to help in an accident scene. Well, it sure does, don't it? All right, let's go, uh, let's go off the reservation here and just start pulling a bunch of material and commenting on it. Well, why is it that we get to comment on these things? Well, I guess it's because we're the ones that have the microphone. We probably should point out the opinions voiced on this program do not necessarily represent those of anybody else but us. And Edward Mill wants to point out that sometimes these aren't even his opinions either. So what the hell? They're opinions. They're put out there. You're free to agree or disagree. But we hope they will provide food for thought. Well, apparently they're running the bulls over in Pamplona, Spain this week. Now, I've never done this and don't really have any desire to do this, but a colleague of mine, George Friedman, did it a couple decades ago. And George learned the hard way that once you're running down these streets of Pamplona and the bulls are there with you, chasing you down the street, there's no way out until you run into the bullring. And evidently there's no way out even then. You have to, like, climb over the barricades however you can. But hey, if that's your idea of a good time, have at it. Now, it's no secret that there's a wave of conservatism that has swept over Europe and sweeping over America and sweeping over lots of places in the world. And apparently over in Spain, some of the conservatives that want to defend traditional values are taking up the cause of bullfighting. Evidently, last March, 10,000 people were out marching in defense of bullfighting in Valencia. The so-called sport of bullfighting has been banned for years in several cities and townships across Spain, notably in separatist Catalonia. And you may be surprised to learn that uh, in the capital city of Madrid, they were subsidizing bullfighting, at least up till last fall, when they cut off the subsidies. According to a piece by Ediurn Uriarte, renowned matadors, including Julian Lopez Escobar and Jose Antonio Morante Camacho, led that march which was described as standing up to the bullying extreme leftists and ethnic nationalists who are intent upon outlawing the sport. Said Uriarte, these radical minorities have deceived and misinformed the people, rallying animal rights groups to their side and making the love of bullfighting appear politically incorrect. We won't let that happen. Noting that Spain is under great strain, both economically and politically, the claim was made that our national identity is at risk of weakening, the only thing that can bring us together is our shared traditions. Any attack on our freedom must be met forcefully in the streets and in the bull rings. Can get, this guy can get a little bit of both if he's out there running in the streets of Pamplona. And frankly, we hope he is. You know, we always want to thank people who contribute to this program, of which there are many contributors. 
And if you want to be one yourself, please don't hesitate to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. A sometime listener in Marin County, Michael, was uh, recommending a book to us titled The Boys in the Boat by Daniel James Brown. It's about subtitled Nine Americans and Their Epic Quest for Gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Now, if you're a regular listener to this program, and we hope you are, you may have noted that we had on this show on a couple of occasions now another participant of the 1936 Berlin Olympics, John Lissack. At any rate, I got the boys in the boat. It's a pretty doggone good read, and I was able to go next door down in the Bay Area and read excerpts from it to John. John competed in rowing at the Olympics, which is quite a bit different from uh, the kind of rowing that takes place in organized crew. But uh, John was full of insights, uh, nevertheless, about the whole sport, and I hope I'll go back and read him some more about the part in the Olympics, which I had not yet gotten to, and then uh, share his insights with you. I want to also note that many years ago, uh, a former Radio Parallax guest, Ms. Jane Rusconi, recommended a book titled Alone with the President to me. And yes, to make a long story short, it's quite a hoot. On the cover, you have the famous picture of Richard Nixon shaking hands with Elvis Presley. I understand a movie is currently out in theaters about this uh, curious juxtaposition, wherein apparently Kevin Spacey plays a pretty good Nixon. And no, I'm not sure who plays Elvis, but I do think I should excerpt a line or two from this book. So here goes. Early in the morning of December 21st, 1970, Elvis Presley drove up the northwest gate of the White House and handed the Marine on guard there a letter he'd written to Nixon on the plane overnight. He'd not flown in his private jet, the Liza Marie, but in a commercial airliner, one of the few times in his life he'd done so. He was dressed in a purple velvet pantsuit and cape with his signature high-collared shirt and belt buckle the size of a license plate carrying a jeweled cane and a loaded forty-five in a shoulder holster, wearing also perhaps the most famous face and hairdo in the world. He believed he was traveling incognito, and in the grand tradition of kings moving among their people, he adopted a pseudonym and rubbed elbows with the commoners, wanting to be known not as the king, but simply as John Burroughs or Dr. John Carpenter which was the character he played a year before in the movie Change of Habit. Neither Elvis nor the commoners he encountered quite had the hang of this kingly tradition, and all failed to play their parts. At the airport, according to Jerry Hopkins' Elvis, the final years, when the king was informed he couldn't board the plane carrying his loaded pistol, he threw a fit and stormed away from the gate. The pilot chased him down the hall, apologized profusely, and the king was wafted aboard, 45 and all. Stewardesses tripped over themselves to serve him. His fellow passengers similarly made no attempt to pretend they didn't recognize Elvis Presley. The note Elvis wrote on board an American Airlines stationery begins, Dear Mr. President, First, I'd like to introduce myself. I'm Elvis Presley and admire you and have great respect for your office. I have talked to Vice President Agnew in Palm Springs three weeks ago and expressed my concern for our country. The drug culture, the hippie elements, the SDS, the Black Panthers, etc., do not consider me as their enemy, or as they call it, the establishment. I call it America, and I love it. Elvis had previously met with John Finlater 
Deputy U.S. Narcotics Director, to ask for a federal narcotics agent's badge. Partly because he really did seem to think he could help fight drugs in the entertainment industry, and partly because it would allow him to carry a gun anywhere in the country. He'd already gotten Deputy Sheriff's badge from Memphis and elsewhere, and had, and had taken to arming himself at all times while at Graceland, supposedly even sleeping with a pistol tucked into the waistband of his pajamas. Finlater had half-jokingly told him that the only man in the country who had the power to give him a Fed's badge was the president. Instantly, he flew to D.C. and had himself driven directly from the airport to the White House, where he dropped off his note for Nixon, in which he promised, Sir, I can and will be of any service that I can help this country out. I've done an in-depth study of the drug abuse and communist brainwashing techniques, and I'm right in the middle of the whole thing where I can and will do the most good. At some point that morning, White House staffer Dwight Chapin sent a two-page memo to Nixon aide H.R. Haldeman, noting that Presley showed up here this morning and has requested an appointment with the president. He states that he knows the president is very busy, but he would just like to say hello and present the president with a gift. Chapin continued, I have talked to Bud Crow about the whole matter, and we both think that it would be wrong to push Presley off on the vice president, since it will take little of the president's time can be extremely beneficial for the president to build some rapport with Presley. In addition, the president wants to meet with some bright young people outside of the government. Presley might be a perfect one to start with. Well, hope does spring eternal, doesn't it? Haldeman wrote in the margin, you must be kidding. Nevertheless, the meeting was arranged for 1230, the end of the president's scheduled open hour of brief visits for handshakes and photos. A briefing memo prepared for Nixon included such talking points as, We have asked the entertainment industry, both television and radio, to assist us in our drug fight. Two of the youth's folk heroes, Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin, recently died within a period of two weeks, reportedly from drug-related causes. If our youth are going to emulate the rock music stars from now on, let those stars affirm their conviction that true and lasting talent is the result of self-motivation and discipline, and not artificial chemical euphoria. One has to pause at this point and wonder what influence Elvis Presley might have had in the onset of Richard Nixon's War on Drugs, a war still on one and still with us. It goes on to suggest that Elvis, who had of course previously demonstrated a remarkable talent for maintaining a chemically induced euphoria, should quote, develop a new rock musical theme, get high on life, and record a live album by that name at the Federal Narcotics Rehabilitation and Research Facility at Lexington, Kentucky. Well, that apparently never took place, to make a, but to make a long story short, Nixon gave Elvis his badge. In fact, that Federal Drug Agent's badge was delivered that very afternoon. At any rate... We may have to go see this movie, and you, dear listener, may have to look up that book by Gerald Strasbaugh. The pictures alone are worth it. Not only several of the iconic Nixon and Elvis photos, but one of Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher with the President and First Lady. Also a show-stopping set of Bob Hope and Jerry Colonna doing a little soft shoe for the previous President LBJ. Worthy of honorable mention, <laughs> a shot of Jimmy Carter with the Bee Gees. Also, one of Nancy Reagan sitting on Mr. T's lap and kissing his mohawked head. Now, this correspondent spent a, a great portion of today driving around in a vehicle, 
was listening to the radio and the news that accompanies that and noted that this whole British study of, uh, well, the Iraq War Report, 12 volumes, 2.6 million words, was published this week. And I think we ought to take a, a moment to kind of review some of the findings of this report. I guess you'd call it the Better Late Than Never report. Even Time Magazine had to cite four major revelations from the report. We'll go with those. Number one, Tony Blair agreed to go to war at least eight months before the invasion. Yes, eight months before the invasion and before getting the approval of Parliament, Blair assured Bush, I'll be with you, whatever. This letter, which I don't know when it surfaced, but it contradicts Blair's previous claims to the public that he had never privately committed to join the U.S. military action in Iraq in the year before the invasion. Number two, the invasion of Iraq was not a last resort. Again, duh. Tony Blair famously told the House of Commons, based on a so-called dodgy intelligence dossier, that Saddam could deploy WMDs against the West within 45 minutes. Note of the report, these claims were presented to lawmakers with a certainty that was not justified. Point three, the UK's legal basis for military action was flawed. Apparently in March 2003, then-Attorney General Peter Goldsmith changed his legal advice and gave advice for war after being informed it was Blair's, quote, unequivocal view, unquote, that Iraq was in breach of a UN resolution to get rid of WMDs. The report states it was unclear how Blair came to that conclusion. And our personal favorite, number four, preparations for Iraq post-invasion were, quote, wholly inadequate, unquote. I'm dismayed at the possibility that this will drop out of the news cycle in a day or two, although it probably will. In an odd, almost comedic addendum to this, I would note that while listening to Democracy Now!, I was startled to hear Amy Goodman play a clip from Donald Trump wherein Trump claimed that, you know, Saddam was a bad guy, but he took care of Islamic fundamentalists. Now, Iraq is like a Harvard for these people. When democracy now cut back to the guest, an expert on Iraq, he had to pause and say, well, it's hard to to deny the truth in that. Say anything bad you want about Donald Trump, and we encourage you to do so. But on the subject of Iraq, this guy calls it like it is. It was a big, fat mistake. It was based on lies about weapons of mass destruction that they knew were lies. And it's led to this ongoing fiasco in the Middle East. Of course, where Mr. Trump falls down in what he says he'd like to do about it now. And I don't want to dwell on this, but you know, you remember a few years back, all that fighting that was going on in Fallujah? American troops in there fighting household to household to take the city? Well, we seem to be back to square one there. In this case, it's the Iraqi government that's in there battling to retake the city from ISIS. A report on these goings-on by Nasir Mulflati of the Norwegian Refugee Council says that displaced Fallujah residents are just a tiny fraction of the record number of people worldwide who've been driven from their homes by war or persecution. We again ask on this question, We again ask on this program the question, how is it that ISIS came to be? Well, to a large degree because of U.S. actions with the help of the British in a completely unjustified war in Iraq and the subsequent efforts to dislodge Bashir Assad from Syria. Let's move on to something a little nicer. If you're down in the Bay Area on a weekend, we uh, can highly recommend to you that you check out the SNA Film Museum in downtown Niles. 
They they play movies on um, Saturday and Sunday nights, and it's uh, well, it's a, it's a good time is generally had by all. Let me quote from a recent piece in the Tri City Voice. I continue to be amazed by the reappearance of silent films thought long lost. I didn't expect to find some SNA films tucked away in our own museum collection that I'd considered lost for all time. Nor would I expect them to be safety prints of excellent quality. By that he's referring, I think, to celluloid that's not the dangerous nitrate stock of which these films were originally shot in. I came across them while making a Word document of our MG Film Library collection and noticed a film title in a compilation movie series called Screen Souvenirs. This particular film was listed as number 22 in the series, and the title of this clip was The Soul Kiss. I recognized it as an SNA film I'd never seen. I identified Ben Turpin as a character watching a stage production of a famous play who gets inspired to kiss everyone he sees. On the same reel was a shot from another lost SNA film, The Havoc, with Bryant Washburn. There were other SNA films in our collection of 16 screen souvenirs. I found nine SNA one-reeler cutdowns, six of which I had believed lost. They date from 1909 to 1911. Among other treasures David stumbled upon were some outtakes from the Charlie Chaplin film, A Night Out. Charlie was in Niles 101 years ago, back in 1915, for a few months, and made, I think, four movies there. And on that note, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.